Well, friends, good morning again and a warm welcome to McLean Presbyterian. It's good that you're worshiping with us here in the sanctuary, down in the Fellowship Hall, or even online. We're looking forward to this time now that the Lord has given us in his word. We're going to do something a little different this morning, and that is we're going to read an entire book of the Bible. It makes you nervous. What book is it going to be? Is it Genesis? Are we going to be here till three o'clock? No, it is not. It is the book of Titus that you'll find on page 998 of your pew Bibles. Uh, Do uh, pull out your Bible or take one from the pew rack in front of you. We're going to read this book together. It's a letter that was written by Paul to Titus on the island of Crete. And as we work our way, as we work our way through it, I'd like you to do uh, two things. First of all, just be, be thinking as you read about what, um, what questions come up to your mind uh, as we work our way through this letter. What things don't quite make sense? What things do you find curious? What, what questions come to your mind? Uh, jot them down in your worship guide. Hopefully we will answer those as we work our way through this book over the next few weeks. Second thing I'd like you to do is uh, take a pencil or a pen um, and underline wherever you see the phrase good works. Whenever we hit the phrase good works in the text, underline that uh, as, as we go. Let's give our attention now to God's word. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. In hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, Sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. 
Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, nor slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychius to you, do your best to come to be at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This, friends, is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, you've always been a God who loves to communicate with his people. And even now, we have uh, your word to us here in your word, and we also have the Spirit with us who enables us to understand uh, what it is uh, you have to say to us. So be with us in these moments, Lord, that we might learn more of your love and its implications for our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So Christmas is 72 days away, 72 sleeps away, and between now and then, many of us, I'm sure, will watch It's a Wonderful Life. The American Film Institute calls it one of the top 100 uh, movies ever made here in America, and it follows uh, James Stewart as George Bailey. As a young man, he wanted to travel the world and have an adventurous life, but he's found over time that he's made small sacrifice after small sacrifice for other people and and has never actually even been able to leave his, his hometown. In the movie, we meet him now, an older man, depressed, uh, waiting on a bridge, uh, about to go bankrupt through no fault of his own, ready to commit suicide. Well, at this point, his guardian angel appears. His guardian angel appears and gives him a vision of what the world would look like had George Bailey never lived. A vision of how he has, in in fact, touched many lives in small but significant ways. Childhood friends, siblings, his own wife, children, even his entire community has been impacted by his presence. He has touched many lives in many ways, and he understands that he has, in fact, lived a good life. He's made a difference. He's lived a wonderful life life. Well, what George Bailey received in retrospect, Paul gives us on the front end, a vision in the book of Titus for what a good life looks like, a vision for what it means to make a difference. We say that we want to be disciples who make a difference. Well, what does that look like? Paul shows us in this text, and we're going to spend the next several weeks looking at that theme together. A vision that we have here of what it means to live the truly wonderful life. Two questions this week as we just get our arms around the book of Titus and set ourselves up for the rest of this series. First of all, we want to ask, who is Paul writing to? Secondly, we want to ask, what does he have to say? Who is he writing to? What does he have to say? Who is he addressing and what is his main message? Let's look at these two things together. This theme of the wonderful life will run through them both. First then, who is Paul writing to? Look with me at verse 1. Paul starts with an introduction of himself. Now, obviously, when we write letters today, we start with the name of the person that we're writing to. That's not how it worked in Paul's day. This is a letter, and when you were writing a letter in Paul's day, you would start by announcing yourself. And so he does in verse 1, introducing himself as Paul, a servant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's an interesting introduction because it is an intro that contains both humility and authority. Humility in that he introduces himself as a servant of God. Paul never forgets where he came from. Paul never forgets all that Christ has done for him, that everything he has is owed to the lavish grace of Christ. And he is now still God's servant. He understands himself as a man who has been bought by and is now owned by and directed by God. Paul doesn't take himself too seriously. But while he has this title of humility, he also has a title of authority. Yes, I'm a servant of God, but I'm also an apostle of Jesus Christ. 
The term apostle, the title apostle, refers to the 12 disciples and Paul. These are the men who were specifically chosen and called and equipped by Jesus himself in order to establish the early church. And so while Paul doesn't take himself too seriously, he takes the work that God has given him very very seriously indeed. Something I think we would all want to aspire to, especially in this town of self-importance. Not to take ourselves too seriously, but to take Jesus very seriously indeed. In verse 4 then, he tells us who he's writing to. You see it there? To Titus, my true child in a common faith. Now we don't know a whole lot about Titus. We do know that he became a Christian under Paul's ministry. This is why Paul refers to him as my true child. We know from the book of Galatians that Titus became a kind of ministry intern of sorts working under Paul. And we know from the book of 2 Corinthians where Titus is mentioned some nine times that Titus matured into a man of of great integrity. Paul entrusted Titus to go to the Corinthian church and deal with all sorts of crazy dysfunction that was happening there. And he also charged Titus to oversee an offering that was to be collected for saints who were in need. So he is a a trusted companion of Paul. Titus is a stud, but he finds himself in an extremely challenging context. Look at verse 5. Here we see that Paul isn't just writing to Titus, but he's also writing to Titus and the church that exists in Crete. Now, Crete is a wee island off the south of Greece that now is not all that well known, but in Paul's day was very well known because it was an important seaport. A lot of trading came in and out of Crete. And so it makes sense strategically for Paul to have planted a church there in this island because people would come to Crete, they would hear the gospel, and then they would leave to spread all over the world that was known at that time, taking the gospel with them. Not actually all that unlike DC. People come here for a season and then they spread out from there. The problem though was that the people on the island of Crete had a very different definition of what it meant to live a wonderful life. A very different different definition to Paul as to what it meant to live a wonderful life. And these differences came from two sources. First from the culture at large, but then also from, from within the church. First, the Cretan culture was known to be a culture of debauchery, of violence, of gluttony and duplicity. Paul sums them up there in verse 12 by quoting one of their own poets. So a Cretan poet called Epimenides wrote this about Cretans when he says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. What a summary, huh? What a summary. Uh, A summary that lots of America thinks is true of DC. Uh, So here we go. Uh, So bad was Cretan culture that they were actually proud of deception. They thought uh, getting away with bad behavior, uh, committing it and then getting away with it was something to be be proud of. They were proud of duplicity, which is probably why uh, Paul introduces God in verse 3 as the God who never lies. So indulge in worldly pleasure. This is what Cretan culture said. Indulge in worldly pleasure. This is what it means to live the wonderful life. Do whatever you want to do and as much as you can possibly get away with. That's what it means to live the wonderful life. 
But, of course, Titus isn't just dealing with problems in Cretan culture. We also know from this letter that he's dealing with problems in the church. Things are no better in the church. Yes, he's contending with those who have a different definition from without, but he's also dealing, look at verse 10, with a a group who have a different definition from within. A group of corrupt leaders that Paul refers to in verse 10 as the circumcision party. It sounds like the worst party ever. I'm not entirely sure what the dress code is for such an occasion, but uh, this actually refers to a group of corrupt teachers who claimed that grace alone was not enough to save you. Yes, you had to have faith in Jesus, but that wasn't enough. That wasn't going to get it done. Along with having faith in Jesus, you also had to follow Jewish practices. So you had to be circumcised, and you had to follow the dietary laws, and you had to do all the things that the law required. In other words, grace was not enough. It was grace plus works. That was what was needed to save. So they said, make sure that you are moral. Make sure that you are religious. That's what it means to live a wonderful life. Be a good person. So Titus from without and from within, from the culture and the church, is contending with people who have a very set but different definition of what it means to live the wonderful life. Licentiousness on the one hand, do whatever you want, get away with as much as you can. Legalism on the other, make sure that you are following all the rules and all the laws. And I wonder, just as we start getting into this book, um, which one of those extremes you tend toward the most? Which one of those extremes do you tend toward the most? I'd suggest that both are present actually in us all. Perhaps your your licentiousness is is subtler than the the Cretans, but we still find ourselves, you still find yourself buying into the lie that happiness is something that can really only be found outside of God. That if you really want to be happy, if you really want to satisfy those desires of your heart, you'll have to find these things in the world through financial security, through true love, through that promotion, through power, through influence. Get those things and then you'll be happy. So maybe you haven't completely turned your back on God, but you just started to give yourself some license. A license perhaps for those socially acceptable sins of materialism and gossip. Our license, perhaps, for those private hidden sins of of lust or pride. Subtler, perhaps, than the Cretans, but still the same folly. Believing that happiness is found in the world. Or, perhaps, you tend toward the other extreme, the legalism of the Cretan church. Again, it might be subtler, but a Pew Research Center has shown us that 7 of 10 Americans, so 70% of Americans, believe that heaven is a good place reserved for, quote, good people. 6 in 10 Americans still also believe in hell as a place that's reserved for, quote, bad people. So be a good, upstanding person, and everything will work out okay. Be a bad person, and things won't work out okay. That is the common belief in our culture, but not the belief that is common to the Scriptures. And yet, how often, perhaps, do we fall into this? Especially in the church, we want to be careful that we're not the kind of place that smugly looks down our nose at the world, that smugly has a sense that we're somehow better than them, that somehow feels that if we work hard, love others, are good people, God will accept us, just be a generally upstanding member of society and things will work out in the end. It might be subtler than the Cretans, but it's the same folly. Believing the wonderful life is found in religiosity. 
where do you see these two tendencies in yourself? I'd suggest, I'd press us to understand that both those tendencies are present in us all. A tendency toward license, a tendency toward legalism. And if you're not able to identify it in yourself, it's probably more because you're not self-aware than it is that those things aren't really there. So who is Paul writing to? Well, he's writing to a dysfunctional church. Titus is the leader there, but he's writing to a dysfunctional church, dealing with license, dealing with legalism, dealing with different definitions of what it means to live the wonderful life. And if we're honest with ourselves, we see those tendencies in our hearts as well. He is writing also, I think, to us. So what's his main message? What's the main thing he has to say as he writes to this group? Is the wonderful life found in worldly joy or is it found in religious obedience? Of course, Paul's main message is neither. (laughs) It's found in neither of those two places. Instead, Paul says, Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, he is calling us, he's calling me, he's calling you to embark on a completely different way of life, a new way of life. Loved by him, we can now live like him. The truly wonderful life is a life where we wrestle with that reality and live lives of joyful obedience. We don't look to worldly joy. We don't look to religious obedience. We instead look to Christ. Now understand that this life of joyful obedience isn't a hybrid or an amalgamation of those other two options. Don't think of worldliness and religiosity, license and legalism as being at either end of the spectrum and the goal is for us to kind of be somewhere in the middle. (laughs) No, that's what we need is an entirely new spectrum. We need an entirely new spectrum. Sinclair Ferguson comments, legalism and license are not antithetical to each other as much as they're both antithetical to grace. In other words, the antidote, the prescription in scriptures for license is never to be more legalistic. And the prescription in scriptures for being legalistic is never just to go and do something wild. The prescription is to turn completely away from that spectrum to Christ. And this is Paul's point in this letter, that grace, the gospel, leads to a wonderful life of joyful obedience. Loved by him, we can now live like him. Let me show you three examples where this point is made in the text so you you can see it for yourselves. First of all, verse 11 of chapter 2. Look down at at that verse with me. We read, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. God has come in Christ, full of grace and truth, saving his people full and free, but also training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace leads to godliness. The gospel leads us into joyful obedience. Look down at verse 14 for another example of this. Paul writes, Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. Jesus died on the cross to buy us back from our sin and brokenness. And he has forgiven us full and free. He did it to redeem us. And verse 14 says, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
Grace leads to godliness. The gospel results in joyful obedience. One more summary in verse four of chapter three. Look down there with me. This is one of my my favorite passages in scripture. We read, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Why did God save us? Not because we did anything to deserve it, but because of his goodness, his loving kindness, his mercy. But then look at verse 8. I want you to insist on these things. I want you to insist on this gospel. I want there, there, there's no room for discussion or debate about how it is that we are saved. I want you to insist on this. Why? So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. In other words, the only thing that will get people to pursue this wonderful life, this life of joyful obedience, this fulfilling life of good works, isn't shame, isn't guilt, it's for you to insist on the fact that the gospel is a gospel of grace. Grace is the only thing that will lead to godliness. The gospel results in joyful obedience. Loved by Christ, we can live like Christ. Several years ago, the stories are told of a a Catholic mystic who lived out west, and she reported that she was having visions of Jesus, visions where Jesus would appear and the two of them would talk. They would have conversation back and forth in these kind of intimate spiritual experiences. Well, the local bishop heard about this woman, and he was suspicious and a little bit nervous. Why? Because there's a very thin line between being a mystic and being a lunatic. And she was getting a lot of uh, attention, and so he wanted to check out this lady to see if she, was, if she was really telling the truth. So one day he goes to visit her, and he says, oh, so I hear you've been having visions of Jesus. Yes, she says, I've been having visions of Jesus. And he said, well, I'm sure you'll, you'll, you'll understand the need just to, to confirm this. So here, here's what I'd like you to do. Next time Jesus appears to you, I would like you to ask him, what are the sins that I last confessed? The lady said, Bishop, you really want me to ask Jesus about, about your sin? You really want to, me to ask him, what are the sins that, that you last confessed in your confession? time?" he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If he answers, that will really verify these claims. Well, Okay, she said, and away the bishop went. Ten days later, she has a vision of Jesus, and she asks the question, and she calls up the bishop and said, hey, I met with Jesus, I asked him the question, come, you know, come see me, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what he said. And the bishop says, great, I'll be right there. Drives over to see her and says, okay, so you, you, you asked Jesus the question, the question about what were the last sins that, that I confessed? What would, what would the answer be if it was to be about you? And she said, yeah, yeah, I asked, I asked Jesus, what, what were the last sins that the bishop confessed? Uh, well, well what, did he, what did he say? She took his hand. She looked him right in the eye and said, I asked Jesus about your latest sin. And here's what he said. His exact words were, I can't remember. I can't remember. Why? Because that's the gospel. The gospel tells us that Jesus takes our sin and casts it into the heart of the sea. That Jesus takes our sin and he removes it from us as far as east is from the west. That in the gospel, our sins are remembered no more. So go ahead and ask him what your latest sin was. Ask him about the latest sin that you confessed. And he's going to say, we dealt with that at the cross. Let's go get some ice cream. This is the Jesus of the gospels who forgives us full and free, then takes us by the hand and invites us into a new way of life. 
a new way of life where we're not spinning our wheels trying to work up fun in the world or spinning our wheels trying to appease God through religion, but are simply entering into a new fullness where we take his hand and follow wherever he leads. Follow wherever he leads. And as we follow him, we find that we become like him. Loved by him, we become like him. His grace leads to godliness. The life of joyful obedience. And that's what the book of Titus is all about. And that's what we're going to study together over these next few weeks. Specifically, Paul is going to apply this life of joyful obedience to the church in chapter one, to our life together as a community. Secondly, he's going to apply it to our homes in chapter two, how we live behind the scenes. Third, he's going to apply it to our culture in chapter three, how we live in the place that the Lord has has placed us. And together, like George Bailey, we're going to get a vision of the wonderful life. A life that makes a difference in small but decisive ways. The vision of a a good life. The joyful, obedient life. The truly wonderful life. Let's pray together. Father, we know that you have called us to be your disciples and that we are to be a people who make a difference in the world in which we live. And so, Lord, we thank you that you've not just commanded us to be that, but you've also shown us how, that the gospel does a work in our hearts and in our lives that produces real change and enables us to live differently. So, Lord, I pray that today we would be a people who embrace this, Not just the kind of logical understanding of how grace leads to obedience, but really embrace the fact, Lord, that you are calling us to a new way of life, uh, a wonderful life. And be with us, Lord, as as we study these next few weeks, that we might each take these things seriously and really seek, Lord, to be, be changed by your word and your spirit as we meet together. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.